ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll hear from State Superintendent Dr. Gary Wright on the state of pre-K programs and the effects on Mississippi children. Then, details on the State Department of Education's move to take a hard look at the effectiveness of student testing. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, some Mississippians are at risk for premature death, serious health effects, and greater difficulty breathing due to air quality. Is our air getting better or getting worse? Plus, a look at Mississippi 50 years after Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. People, better our outcomes, and we all win. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The National Institute for Early Education Research has released its 2017 State of Preschool Report with highlights of Mississippi's progress. State Superintendent Dr. Carrie Wright joins us live this morning. Mississippi is one of five states meeting NEARS 10 quality standard benchmarks and indicators. Good morning, Dr. Wright. Good morning. So tell us the positives first. What are we doing right? Oh, we're doing a lot right, particularly as it comes to pre-K. Um, we are, um, with our collaboratives that you know were, were established based on a law that was passed to establish our collaboratives, uh, the, we are now monitoring um, them as they come into kindergarten, but NEAR is also looking and evaluating our programming uh, from a national perspective. And indeed, we were only one of five states that met um, their, uh, their quality indicators. So we're very excited, and it lets us know what we're doing is, is working. I was on um, a call yesterday prior to the release of the NEAR uh, results today, and the uh, founder of NEAR uh, was asked the question, should we be focusing on increasing access or improving quality? And his comment was, uh, quality definitely trumps access. He said, but that being said, we definitely want to expand access. And that's one thing that, that we're kind of concerned about. With our collaboratives, we're only serving about 3% of our four-year-olds uh, through the collaboratives. But if you look at our district-funded, meaning they could use their federal money or local money, uh, we're serving about 16% of the four-year-olds. So we've got a long way to go um, to increase access, but we're very proud of what our collaboratives have done. Well, in addition to that increasing access, what other things need to be improved upon? 
As far as the early learning programs are yes. concerned? Well, one of the things that um, NEAR was looking at that we, uh, on their new benchmark, the new benchmark that we don't have but we will have with our Kellogg found money, and I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute, relates to coaching of our teachers. So NEAR is saying that in all early, um, early learning programs, we should be having a coach to coach our teachers. So we've also obtained a grant from the Kellogg Foundation of about $6 million dollars to hire additional people to work in our state, either public or private, um, who serve four-year-olds, but we will be hiring coaches now to go out and coach in these programs, um, hopefully to improve the quality uh, of the programs that uh, are really not um, producing the children that are ready for kindergarten. Over what period of time will you be able to introduce that? Um, the grant is for three years, um, and so we will that which is giving us a huge reach uh, because we've been looking at the data of children that are coming into kindergarten. We're asking parents to identify where they were as four-year-olds, and so we've been able to disaggregate the kindergarten readiness data to let us know which programs that are serving four-year-olds are doing a really good job of preparing uh, children for kindergarten and those that are struggling. And with those that are struggling, this gives us an opportunity to put our coaches um, out in those schools to help those uh, programs get better. Dr. Wright, obviously children who are in pre-K programs are benefiting from that. It it gets them ready for for kindergarten and first grade and on. Who else benefits from early childhood education? Oh my gosh, there's the benefits go throughout life and there's a lot of research to support that. Uh, Let me talk about return on investment first because we're always talking about money and the research is showing that if you invest early with early, high quality early childhood programs, uh, the return on investment, you know, on the other end by the time kids graduate is between seven and twelve dollars on the dollar. So it is far uh, far cheaper to educate early on than it is to remediate later on. The research is also showing that children that have attended high-quality early childhood programs are um, less inclined to be involved with the police, less inclined to get involved with drugs, more inclined to graduate, more inclined to be successful in work. They've followed these children all the way through uh, into their 20s and some studies into their 30s. And this is true regardless of the piece of research that's out there. So that's one thing. The other thing is when you start children off well, you know, we've got a literacy-based promotion act that says that if you're not reading proficiently by the end of third grade, excuse me, if you you can't pass the third grade assessment, then uh, you're going to have to be retained. We want to get our children um, proficient in reading truly by the end of grade two. So this this whole focus on early childhood and whole focus on literacy is going to benefit the state overall because if you can get children proficient in reading early on, reading is the gateway, the gateway to all other subjects. And so that's one of the things that that is a benefit to to even the teachers that will have them in the future if they're already coming in well-prepared. Now, dual speakers or dual language in this state, are there more children in that situation and how is that being addressed? So that was a really good point that was brought up yesterday on the call. Um, Actually, we did a, you know, um, uh, it was like a webinar, if you will. Um, And dual language learners are increasing in number in our state um, significantly. And so um, we have to really start looking at what kinds of interventions, what kinds of programs are we providing to children who are literally speaking two different languages or trying to learn to speak English and speaking a different language at home because that um, that's hard on a little one, right? And you're still trying to get them to learn to read at the same time. So that requires a, a totally different set of interventions uh, on a teacher's part. Uh, in addition to initiatives for pre-K students, the State Department of Education 
will soon perform a complete examination of how students are tested. It's called the Mississippi Student Testing Task Force. MDE officials say a mix of legislators and educators, as well as students and parents, will be in on it. The goal is to analyze state and district-level testing and find ways to make it better. Dr. Wright, what's the biggest cause for the task force? Well, we've been hearing a lot, um, you know, over the past few years from, you know, parents and teachers um, and legislators, particularly this past session, uh, around the concern around the amount of testing that is being done um, at both at the district and at the state level. Uh, the state testing that's required is required by the federal government. So that's kind of, you know, carved in stone. Um, the testing that we're looking at also is the, uh, the testing that's being done at the district level. So with the task force is really going to do a wide survey of all 144 districts to try to get a sense of, you know, what tests are being used, of what quality, how much are they costing, are they aligned to our standards, um, how many of them are, you know, are showing benefit. Um, because there is benefit to, to benchmark testing. Um, but we're trying to get a sense of exactly what's happening because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so what we want the task force to do is to really drill down so that we can produce a report. It's going to be very transparent. Um, the meetings are going to be very transparent. Uh, we want the public to be informed about what the task force is finding. State Superintendent Kerry Wright. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wright. My pleasure. Thank you. A recent study by Mississippi First, a group focused on education advocacy, policy, and research, found student testing is inconsistent based on feedback from four anonymous school districts. Executive Director Rachel Cantor says some level of testing is valuable and important, but some tests are not useful. We are very excited that the Department of Education has decided to take this step. On April 2nd, we published a report that we've been working on for two years looking at testing practices in public school districts in Mississippi. We looked at four school districts. We tried to pick a representative sample. Two were high-performing, two were low-performing. Two had high rates of poverty. Two had lower rates of poverty, but still significant rates of poverty. And two had a lot more access to technology than others. And what we wanted to know, looking at these diverse school districts, is what their testing practices looked like and what that might tell us about whether or not students were over-tested. And MDE yesterday announced that they were going to have a task force in part in response to some of the findings that we had in this report. What did you find? We found that it is true that students are spending significant amounts of time on testing in particular school districts. What is not true is that all of that time is spent on state testing. State testing, the actual time it takes to take state tests is actually about 1% or less per grade, tested grade in the, in the school year. But that doesn't mean that schools aren't spending significant amounts of time preparing for tests or taking other district tests. And so we found that most tests that students take that are standardized are tests that the district is requiring them to take, not the state. And that the time that they're spending on those tests varies greatly across school districts. So some school districts are spending a lot more time than others, and we found that low-performing school districts were much more likely to spend a lot of time on test prep and a lot of time taking tests than high-performing high school districts. Does this cut into instructional time? Absolutely. So every minute that you're spending on taking a standardized test – is a time that you're not spending on core content instruction. 
There are good reasons to take tests. You need tests to be able to know if students learned what you wanted them to learn and then be able, teachers need to be able to use that data to change their lesson plans going forward. If they need to go back and remediate students on particular concepts or if they know, okay, they learned it and now I can move forward. Those, that's an important instructional use of tests and an important instructional use of time. But if you're spending so much time testing and then you're not even looking at that data, you would be better off spending more time teaching. But it's not just going to be about state testing. It's going to be about district testing as well, right? District testing as well. Because state testing happens once a year. We had one year when we took the park assessment where we had a what they called a performance-based assessment that happened set after 75% of the year and then a second assessment at the end of the year. That was a lot of time. And one of our recommendations was to MDE was around before you change state tests in the future, you need to consider how much time those take. And now we have a, a state assessments, again, that are only happening at the end of the year. And it's a lot less time and a lot less um, hoopla that goes along with it when you're only doing it once a year. So, yes, there are state testing things that they're going to look at, including the question of whether or not we should change the high school assessments, which is something the legislature has been very interested in. But they're also, I think, going to consider the question of can they do more as as the department or can the legislature do more around district testing? And you're leading me into the next question. Is legislation required for this or should this just be handled on uh, the level for the Department of Education? It really depends what the what the problem you're trying to solve is and what the best solution for it is. Legislation is not always the best going to be the best solution. Sometimes the best solution is for school districts to change their practices, and that can be accomplished either by something regulatory at MDE or by school districts voluntarily choosing to change. So legislation is not always needed or required or even the best option. So it really depends on what, once this task force convenes and looks at our recommendations and looks at more information, what problem they're really trying to solve. Rachel Cantor of Mississippi First with our Mark Rigsby. Mississippi First recommends MDE play a bigger support role in testing, help districts audit their testing practices, and help determine the best use of instructional time. The task force is expected to present its report by the end of the year. Coming up, is air quality in Mississippi improving or getting worse? We'll find out after a Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Tell me how to diagnose and treat gout. Absolutely. Gout is a condition where you make a lot of uric acid and you get so much uric acid that you get inflammation in the joint. So the way it's diagnosed is a clinical diagnosis and we try to get where we can put a needle in it and we put that on a slide and look at it under the microscope and we can actually see those crystals. The treatment for gout is to get your uric acid level down. The treatment for rescue from an acute attack of gout is colchicine or steroids. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. 
The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Air pollution in Mississippi is decreasing. The American Lung Association's 2018 State of the Air report found Mississippi has earned improved grades for the nation's most widespread air pollutants. Compared to the 2017 report, Mississippi has seen a slight cut in ozone pollution. This is in spite of a trend seen across the nation of higher ozone pollution levels. Cleveland, Indianola, Jackson, Vicksburg, and Brookhaven recorded zero unhealthy air days for ozone pollution and were named among the cleanest cities for ozone pollution. Ashley Lyerly is Regional Director of Public Policy at the American Lung Association. She says even with improvements in air quality, more than four in 10 Americans live in counties where their health is at risk. The American Lung Association's State of the Air 2018 report um, is a report that specifically looks at um, air pollution and obviously air quality, um, and it looks at a couple of different categories. So it looks at ozone pollution um, as well as particulate pollution. So those are two sort of top types of um, pollution that help us determine air quality. So um, particle pollution is made up of microscopic specks of soot, metals, acid, dirt, pollen, mold, and aerosol that are tiny enough to inhale. So if you're talking to an expert, a lot of times they'll refer to PM10 or PM2.5, and these are molecules that are actually smaller than the size of a human hair. Um, And so obviously these types of small particles um, can cause um, breathing issues. Um, And then the other major category that help us determine air quality is ozone. And ozone is Um, the nation's sort of least well-controlled air pollutant, but it is typically known as smog. So ozone pollution forms in the atmosphere when gases come out of um, tailpipes, smokestacks, um, oil and gas extraction, and then any other sources that can react with the presence of sunlight. Over the 19 years that you've been conducting this report or preparing this report, have there been significant changes for the better or for the worse? So, yes, over the 19 years, we've really seen um, improvements in in air quality. You can look back to some of the neighboring uh, states and cities, even thinking about, you know, Birmingham, Alabama. We have, you know, we probably have the same across Mississippi, but images that really show the air quality that when you walk, walk outside, it's just gray. And that's back in the 1970s. And so then when you would go back inside, you're just covered in soot. Cars would get covered in soot. And so over the last couple of years, we've seen tremendous improvement, and a lot of that is caused, and one of the reasons why we've seen improvement is from the implementation of the Clean Air Act. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that the Lung Association really advocates for is that we continue to see implementation of the Clean Air Act because it has worked tremendously um, to improve the air, um, remove the dangerous air pollution from across the nation. And so air is cleaner now than it was 19 years ago, um, but it still isn't clean enough to protect people's health. How is Mississippi ranked in the report? For Mississippi, we've actually seen in our 2018 report, which looks at 2014, 2015, and 2016 data, compared to Mississippi um, in 2017, we've seen um, improved grades. Um, 
um, for the nation's most widespread air pollutants. In particular, for Mississippi, um, we've seen a uh, improvement in ozone pollution um, for our 2018 report. And so this is actually, surprisingly, in spite of trends from across the nation, um, across the nation in this year's report, we're seeing that we're actually seeing higher ozone pollution levels. Um, and so in particular, in Cleveland, um, Indianola, Jackson, Vicksburg, and Brookhaven, there were actually um, zero unhealthy air days for ozone pollution. Is there anything else you can tell us about Mississippi? Any other findings? We want to see continued improvements um, in Mississippi and across the nation. And we know that um, being exposed to ozone and particle pollution is dangerous to public health and can increase the risk of premature death, lung cancer, asthma attacks. And so we just encourage um, folks to um, engage um, where they can on um, policy issues related to air quality. And we um, want to see the clean air um, continue to be implemented so that we can continue to see improvements in Mississippi like we've seen um, in the 2018 report. Are there grassroots efforts or legislative action that can be taken to keep the ball rolling in terms of better air quality? Yeah, so for the American Lung Association, we really strongly believe and and hope that folks across the nation are are, um, advocating for this, but we really believe that the Clean Air Act um, must remain intact um, and needs to be enforced to enable the nation to continue to protect all Americans from the dangers of um, health pollution, from air pollution. Um, You know, even though we've seen continued improvement in air quality, we still see that more than um, four in 10 Americans, so that's about 133.9 million Americans live in counties that have unhealthful levels of either ozone or um, particle pollution. And so we really strongly believe we need to continue um, to fight actions and to implement um, the Clean Air Act that we know has um, shown dramatic improvements over the last couple of years. Ashley, how can people see the report? Visit stateoftheair.org. Ashley Lyerly is the Regional Director of Public Policy for the American Lung Association. Ashley, thank you so much for the information. Thank you. Coming up, civil rights advocates take a look at Mississippi 50 years after Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates for eliminating poverty are commemorating the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. A forum in Jackson this week is dedicated to Mississippians still living in poverty 50 years after King's Poor People's Campaign. Bill Bynum is CEO of Hope Enterprise Corporation. We are still working on issues that Dr. King was working on in Memphis. We have wide economic gaps and We know that a lot of people don't have the means to support their families. Myron Hudson says he grew up poor, but after serving in Vietnam, he lived a good life. The 84-year-old Greenville resident says he was a junior college chemistry professor and did some research at the University of Mississippi. Over a period of time, he became unemployed and homeless. I lived for 20 years in my 1983 van, and it became a thing for me that as I went around trying to help myself, I wound up trying to help other people. 
In 2015, assistance from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs helped Hudson move off the streets and into a home. Bynum is asking advocates to invest more in order to eliminate the prevalence of poverty in Mississippi. Regardless of uh, what your priorities are, whether it's national offense or social service programs, we're not going to generate the revenue to address anything if we have large segments of the population that are not productive. And so I, I think that the more we invest in our people, the better our outcomes, and we all win. More than 20 percent of Mississippians live in poverty, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. That completes our show today. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, Everyday Tech. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio.